Today's episode is sponsored by Relics of Rajavahara, the puzzly solo adventure game. Picture an 80s and 90s style brain teaser like the puzzles in The Legend of Zelda and Adventures of Lolo turned into a 3D tactile experience. 50 levels spread out over 5 unique floors, with each level more challenging than the last, all put together in a look and feel that is reminiscent of Indiana Jones and Tomb Raider. Designed by Joe Slack and featuring the artwork of Tristam Rosin, Relics of Rajavahara will keep you coming back for more. Are you up for the challenge? Check it out on Kickstarter right now. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're getting serious. Today we're talking about games in a series, and we're talking to Justin Gary from Stoneblade Entertainment. Justin, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, man. Really excited to have you here. You know, games in a series, you are like the perfect person to talk to about this, with the, especially with the Ascension series. You've got Shards of uh, Infinity. You've got so many games that you've just put out. Amazing content, amazing expansions, amazing uh, games over the last decade, over 10 years. You got the 10-year anniversary this year. Congrats on that. So I'm just really excited to, uh, to get into, you know, games in a series, like what it looks like to design these things and change things around and you know, what do you, as far as art and mechanisms and the world, all this different stuff. Uh, but before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about all that stuff too. Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, my name is Justin Gary. I, uh, I actually first got into games uh, as a professional Magic the Gathering player. Um, I won the U.S. National Championships when I was 17, way back in 1997, uh, and then uh, started playing and actually how I paid my way through college and uh, you know, went on to, to, to do pretty well with that. And uh, that's kind of what got me my first taste of, you know, making a living as uh, in, in games. Uh, but I never really took that seriously in the sense that I was always going to go on and be a lawyer. So I went and uh, went to law school for a year uh, and was miserable, <laughs> just miserable. Uh, and fortunately, um, I still had some contacts in the gaming industry. So the summer after my first year of law school, I was able to get a uh, internship at Upper Deck Entertainment in San Diego, uh, working on the Versus System trading card game, the Marvel versus DC uh, trading card game. And uh, I will tell you that the difference between uh, being a, in law school in New York or making games in San Diego was pretty dramatic. Uh, and uh, while that was a uh, what felt like a very difficult decision at the time, uh, turned out to be a great one as I, I quit law school. I uh, became a game designer full time, went on to uh, create things like the World of Warcraft miniatures game and uh, spent uh, about a eight, eight years or so uh, working there and then eventually started my own company, launched Ascension. And uh, then the rest is history and I've been launching games here as well as uh, I do, you know, some games for other people as well, like the Bakugan uh, toy collectible card game and a bunch of other things. So it's been a really fun, really fun ride. Yeah, very cool. And so before we get into it, I, I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a professional Magic player, because this is interesting to me. Maybe this is just kind of a personal thing, because I played a ton of Magic when I was in high school and college, and it was always something I was kind of like, I didn't really like share it with a lot of people, because I have a sports background, and my teammates uh, would have 
definitely made fun of me for playing this goofy, silly little card game in their eyes. And so tell me what it's like to be a, a professional player. Cause maybe if I was able to pay for my college with it, I wouldn't have been so shy about it. Cause if people made fun of me, it was like, yeah, like, yeah, but I made, I made more than both your parents combined last year in, in doing this. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, really does, it really does help. Right. A lot of people are like, what are you doing with your life? You're like, well, I made 60 grand last year playing cards. Right. And traveled around the world, so what are you doing? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's it like to be a professional? Are you just traveling around the world and doing tournaments? Like, tell me about it. Yeah. So it was a really, uh, so it started off, um, you know, I also was a competitive and I actually, I, I was, I did some competitive sports in high school, including uh, wrestling. And then I tore a ligament in my knee uh, at a wrestling match, which was one of the more painful things that had happened to me. And that helped me decide that, you know, intellectual sports are more my game because, you know, you lose a game of magic and your, your pride is hurt, but you can still walk away from the table. Uh, That's so, what surgeries needed after a magic no, game. No, no, you got, you got some hurt feelings. That's as bad as it Get. so maybe a paper cut here and there uh so i um you know took so when i first uh started getting into it I, I you know it was just for fun and hanging out with friends i think like most people do and go to the local you know ptq or whatever and then i i you know we, i drove with my friends up to, to state championships and and i i won those and that got me the invite to to nationals i couldn't even afford to go to nationals my first year we didn't have you know the money to do that so i actually ran a tournament at a local store to get fundraising so I could get a flight to go to nationals. I slept on a friend's floor in their hotel room. And then once I'd won nationals, now all of a sudden it was like, oh no, wait, this is a real thing. And so, you know, being a professional at that point was like, you know, I was still in high school and college during most of that time. So I've spent most of my evenings and free time playing games. And I actually, if you look back on my old notebooks, there's scribbled deck lists on the side of every single notebook uh, that I ever had through college. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it would be like every quarter that I'd fly to some cool new destination and go play in the Pro Tour. And so it would be, you know, uh, traveling to Rome or Sydney or, you know, London or, you know, Tokyo. And it, so it was this really awesome experience to be able to kind of travel and make friends that that was really the, the, the most profound part of it was I made friendships and relationships that, you know, we have still last to this very day and, and people who I, you know, I work with to found my company and everything. And then as far as the, so the, that was the piece that was sort of most exciting as far as the, you know, key lessons I took from that, that actually apply throughout the rest of my life. One is look, it's a job and you got to work hard at it. My best success in uh, in the Pro Tour were the times when I spent the most time playing and practicing and working with great people. I joined the Your Move Games team and you know worked with people like Rob Doherty and uh, Darwin Castle and you know Zvi Mauschwitz and you know Brian Kibler and a bunch of other people who were like very talented, great people who are great at the game and they help make me better at the game. So, you know, working hard, making sure that you are surrounding yourself with people that are better than you, that you could learn from, uh, that help you grow. And then, you know, being able to uh, also understand uh, when you have setbacks, which are inevitable, when you have things that, that go wrong, that you look to the things that you can learn from those, right? Like I don't, it, it's sort of this cliche that, uh, but it's like, I don't, the specifics of the tournaments that I win and the you know games that I win kind of fade away. But when there are games that you lose, you can have two reactions, right? The most common one I hear from players is, "Oh man, I got lucky," or "I you know I didn't get the man I needed," or "He got a lucky draw." The thing I hear from the players who are the consistent winners are, "Okay, well maybe if I had made a different play three turns earlier, I wouldn't have needed to draw an extra land here, or if I you know played it this other way, I could have changed the outcome." And being able to take those 
losses and like some significant ones, right? I mean, I lost, I made mistakes that cost me tens of thousands of dollars. And I can look back at those and say, okay, this is how I'm going to take the, take away from this. And this has been critical, not only in my game design career, but also in, you know, founding a company and trying to run a business. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that, that life. It was obviously a super fun and, you know, blessed thing to be able to have, but I see, you know, key traits that I was able to take from that, that, that I think everybody that's, you know, listening, whether you want to be a professional magic player or a professional game designer, uh, those things are really valuable. Yeah, that's awesome. Now I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, you're talking about how you didn't have the money to get to nationals. So you set up a tournament. Uh, were you basically a ringer? Like, were you a, a magic gathering shark and you're taking all these nerds money? You set up shop at the game store and you're like, hey, you want to play? And then you lost the first one. You're like, hey, you want to bet some money on the next one? No, 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 no. No, I was, I was friends with the store owner and I called Wizards of the Coast. So he's got a cut. So he got like 10% no, 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 of your no, no, no. no, the entry fee. I, I took the entry fee. I didn't play in the tournament. I ran the tournament. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That's really. Funny. Uh, I was thinking this is like rounders. You're uh-huh. like, hey, I need some money, so I'm gonna go down to the uh, casino where these guys are amateurs, and I'm a pro, and they have no idea, and I'm about to, uh, I'm about to take these nerds money. They, they, mm-hmm. That is awesome. No, that is not. That is not. That is not how that went down. Although I did watch rounders before almost every pro tour for like several years. That was like, yeah. So I wanted to be that guy, but I, no, it was it was a it was a uh, it was a, a great community thing within like two weeks of being able to like get everybody in my local community to come and play in the tournament and Wizards of the Coast sanctioned it and I was able to judge it with it was like it was kind of wild west days or whatever but you know it was just one of those things I was determined to sort of make it happen and a lot of people came together to kind of help make it happen so uh it was a it was a really good experience not a not a sharky experience (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's really cool I'm not sure how a a movie about imagine the gathering shark in the in the style of rounders would do but I would definitely watch it so yeah a certain audience of people who would love that sort of thing <laughs> I don't know I don't know if it's enough to make a whole movie but you never know we, we got we got ascension featured in a movie uh last summer uh the good boys uh which, which was the from the makers of super bad and uh so they had a bunch of kids uh that were a part of the plot point was they were you know one of them was a big ascension fan and was having to sell off his expensive promo card or whatever it was it was pretty fun Oh, that's cool. That's really awesome. And honestly, with the the movies that Netflix puts out sometimes, I think this would be actually a much better movie than some of the other ones I've seen. And so, you know, uh, let's you know make it happen, I guess. Okay. All right. All right. Let's, uh, let's <laughs> on the to-do list. <laughs> that's right. All right. So anyway, let's get into the topic. We're talking about games in a series. What does that mean? Like when, when you say series of games, what does that mean from, you know, the Stoneblade entertainment perspective? Yeah, so when I, you know, we talk about making games in a series or making a game that lasts, it's a making a game that people not only continue to want to play forever, right? Like, I mean, obviously chess has survived pretty pretty well, but also a game where you can continue to create new content. Uh, and, and specifically, I think about this as sort of, you know, individual, like discrete purchase content, but it can be, you know, trading card game content and that sort of thing too. Uh, but something that you can continue to create new content year after year that people can continue to engage with that is, you know, from a designer and publisher standpoint, it's great because you can continue to, you know, sell some new things, but also that you can continue to provide, you know, a similar but different uh, type of joy and learning and play experience to your audience. And that sort of ties into to one of the first key lessons about it. But the, the, the basics of we can create new content that plays on the same themes and the heart of the core game uh, that can go on for years and years. Very cool. And so, yeah, I definitely want to get into these lessons, but first let's get a kind of a a frame around what we're talking about. So the game Ascension is just a perfect 
example of this. You also have Shards of Infinity that, that you've done. And so tell me a little bit about those games, and that way people listen that maybe you've never played them, they can have a little bit better understanding of what we're talking about. Because I feel like some game types lend themselves to this a little bit better than others. So tell me about your games, and then we can jump into like the lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. So Ascension is a deck building game. Uh, it was actually one of the first deck building games to ever come out. Now it's it's 10 year anniversary is coming up uh, very, very shortly this year. Um, and we have uh, basically the it was the first game to ever use the concept of a ever changing center row. So Dominion was the very first deck building game. And the, the principles are the same where you start with everybody starts with the same basic deck of cards, you acquire new cards to make your deck better over time and use those to earn points to sort of win the game. Where Ascension differentiated itself was that this, the, instead of having all the cards set up at the beginning of the game, you shuffle a giant deck, deal out six cards, and every time you buy one of those cards, a new card comes up off the deck to replace it. So every single game is different. Every card has to be evaluated in the context of the cards that are showing up, that have already shown up, and you're also buying for the same resources. So if I, you, if I not only have to think about the cards that I want, but the cards that I want to take away from my opponents. Um, in addition, we have we have a much more fantasy theme that you can kill monsters and earn points as well as um, be able to sort of buy things and add to your deck. And that's the kind of basic overview of uh, of Ascension. And of course, a lot of additional things have been added over time, but we can talk about that. Uh, Shards of Infinity, we just released uh, two years ago, and that one is a uh, also a deck building game, but it was kind of the... I'll take the lessons that I've learned from making Ascension for nearly a decade and start, if I were starting over, what would I do? And so it's a much more, that uses a, the new biggest innovation of that is the mastery mechanic where you as a player can actually level up and that increases the power level of like all your cards, including the infinity shard, which is everybody gets one that starts in their deck, which only does two damage when you first start the game. But if you can get up to 30 mastery, it does infinite damage and can kill everybody right away. So there's actually multiple paths to victory and a different context to everything, depending upon how you're advancing your mastery track versus upgrading your deck versus attacking the other players. And it creates a really interesting dynamic. And uh, for Ascension, the expansions, we've done uh, 16 full standalone expansions, meaning if you've never played it before, you pick any box up off the shelf, you'll have everything that you need to play. And it's every everything's designed to be a great introductory point as well as an interesting add-on for people that are fans of the product. Shards of Infinity, we went with a different direction where uh, each of the expansions is, uh, you must have the base game to play and the expansions add on to the base game and add new mechanics to that. We can talk about some of the differences there. Both games have also been turned into digital form. Um, you can find the both uh, Shards of Infinity and Ascension on iOS, Android, and Steam. Um, Ascension is actually free to download on iOS and Android right now. Um, and we also, Ascension can also be found in virtual reality, uh, believe it or not. Uh, so if you have a VR set, you can play Ascension in VR, uh, which has been great uh, for the world where we can't actually go out and hang out with each other. Uh, so that's kind of a brief overview of those games I've uh, that we sort of, uh, you know, release as Stoneblade. You know, I've also worked on a variety of, of, of trading card games and expandable content games, uh, including as I mentioned, Versus System, World of Warcraft Miniatures game, uh, and a whole bunch of others. So that's a brief overview of the many expandable things. Very cool. All right, so let's talk about why somebody would want to do this, either both as a designer and a publisher, why it makes sense to create games that are in a series, you know, what are some of the advantages, and then after that we can maybe get into some of the disadvantages. Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the main advantages is, uh, look, making games is hard. 
And you never know when a game is going to be successful. As much as you can kind of set yourself up for success and try to make something that you think is amazing, the truth is you've got to have that sort of right magical combination of lightning in a bottle of like, I've got a great game. I've been able to reach an audience with it. People start, you know, wanting to share it with friends and people can, you know, it starts to kind of get some real traction. Once you've done that, you really, it's amazing to be able to then take that and continue to release new content to support that same game line, right? It's sort of like, you know, you kind of keep putting, you know, hooks out into the water. And once you reel in a fish, you want to be able to make sure it's a big fish. So being able to have an expandable game that can continue to release content is that big fish, right? You, you're able, you know, I've been able to, I, I wasn't sure, certainly didn't think this was going to happen when I launched it, but, you know, essentially was able to sort of provide the foundation stone for the whole company. So we could release a lot of products and try stuff over the years, but essentially is consistently going to be something that allows me to continue to do what I do and make this my job. So I think as a publisher and as a designer, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And then as a, as a creator, it's really great too, because you can kind of take people on a journey. Uh, I'm a big believer that as a designer, especially for a, a new product, right? Everything that you try to teach somebody, every new rule, every new complication is this barrier to entry and it's going to hit people and prevent them from getting in. So you have to be very, very rigorous about being, um, you know, keeping your games easy to learn and easy to get into as much as possible for the type of game you're making. When you're making an expandable game, that gives you the possibility to take people down this, you know, what can end up being a pretty complicated path and a lot of really interesting twists and turns and design choices that would be very, very hard to make for an initial release. But because you've taken them step by step by step, you can create something that would, I think, be either impossible or at the very least very, very difficult to create and succeed with out of the gates. So so both creatively and uh, business-wise, there's a lot of upsides. Yeah, for sure. One of the biggest advantages that I've found is when you create a system, it makes designing the next one a little bit easier. Not necessarily easy, but it's a little bit easier because you already have some established things that you know work that you don't have to spend, you know, 100 hours playtesting because you already did that. And now you're just using that same system and tweaking it and changing different things, adding new mechanisms, taking things away. But it, it seems like it makes the core a little bit easier uh, to deal with. I've got a system of games called Hunted where you know the the main core mechanism is very very similar in all the different games but then the theme is different there's different ways to do combat like there's all sorts of differences but the great thing about that system is that when i come up with a new idea i already know that the, the core system the core engine it works really really well and it's been play tested to death and so i can start from there as opposed to starting from scratch and i found that to be a huge advantage have you noticed that in your own like design process like it's sped up because you you, you know that certain aspects already work really well Oh, hundred percent. And and I think you get, you get the advantages on the front end and the back end. I think the front end advantage is like what you're talking about, right? When you're talking about creating, how do I make this fun? What's the, what's the core of what's going on here, right? You already have something that, you know, people love. That's the fun core, you know, core tension, core mechanic, and your job is to just kind of play with it and tweak it in different ways and, and give it some counter tensions. And so that's much easier than starting from scratch and saying, how do, how do I find the fun? Then there's the back end where it's things like getting your development and your polish and your story and your, you know, getting the numbers right and all of that, where, you know, my Ascension instincts, development instincts are trained, you know, quite well. I know I could glance at a card and get it to within a, a point of being, you know, exactly balanced just by looking at it, as opposed to when I'm building a new engine. Uh, I have no idea. And in fact, I actually advise people to like, don't even worry about that sort of thing for a while. It takes a long time to train your instincts and you got to like go through that whole find the fun process and then eventually get your instincts dealt, you know, dialed in to be able to develop it. And so both those pieces are way easier once you've gotten, you know, through a few iteration cycles of a, of a game. 
Yeah, for sure. Another thing I've noticed from a publishing standpoint is that when you have a, a system or a series of games, it's a lot easier to like know exactly how big the box needs to be. Like you have an idea of like how many cards are going to be in there, how many tokens, like just from the printing, the manufacturing side, it makes things so much easier because you kind of already have an idea. Like you don't have to go through as much of a process of figuring out, okay, now the box needs to be a few millimeters bigger or smaller, the insert or, or whatever it is. Have you noticed it? it like sped up your manufacturing as well? Oh yeah, it's not even. I mean, that's not even a close question. I mean, we know what the ascension box is. We know what fits in the ascension box. Like it's, we've not varied that box for I think eight years now. That main box. Uh, we have, you know, we can talk about the couple changes we made after the first couple of lessons, years of lessons. But yeah, I know exactly what's going to be. I know the very close range of what it's going to cost. If I want to add a new wacky component, that's going to be the only unknown, you know, that I have to focus on as opposed to. Yeah, starting over. It's it, that that sort of thing. It's is is another huge uh, ease thing, and another actual huge value add. Uh, it's way way easier to find playtesters and people that want to help you with your game when you have a game that's already out there, right? We created our what we call our cultist program. Um, the cultist is one of the initial little starting cards of Ascension, and uh, people are very happy to volunteer their time, come in, check out. They get they get to you know interact with us and check out the new game and then give us feedback. And so actually, I have a, a, an army of playtesters available that. I will still, you know, share sometimes my new, new games with them, but they're not nearly as excited about it or not nearly as able to kind of engage with that as they are with a new Ascension expansion. I will get, you know, tons of feedback whenever I need it. Uh, and actually every year or so, uh, we, we message out to our, our stoneblade.com email list to invite new people in and we have to like filter down because there's so many people that want to be a part of it. Uh, so that, that makes life a lot easier too. Right. It's such a huge advantage when you're not having to convince people that they're going to like the game. It's like, no, <laughs> if you've played the other one, you're probably going to like this one. Here's how it changes. Here's some tweaks. Here's some new mechanism, new cars, new ideas, whatever. But if you like the, the, the previous one or the original, you're probably going to like this one. If you didn't like that one, then you're probably not going to like this one. And so it seems to make it easier to reach out to an audience, to your core demographic, uh, especially something to think about if you have a Kickstarter if you're a Kickstarter creator and you're wanting to do, you know, multiple games and, and go to Kickstarter every single time, I know you, you've done things differently. So I want to hear your perspective on this, especially is, is tell me about like the audience and, and how maybe because you've, you've had other games that come out as well that you did have to convince people for the first time. Hey, you should buy this game. And, and I'm sure they asked, is it like Ascension? And you're like, oh, no, not at all. And so tell me about that aspect from publishing. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of interesting things here, and, and I think now may be a good time for me to drop what I would consider to be the most important lesson uh, when it comes to creating an expandable game, a game that's going to stand the test of time like this. And it's it's resolving this central paradox of same but different, right? The, the idea of making an expansion is that I, you love this thing that I've made, right? You love this game, and you want more of it. And so I have to give you something that's similar to what you just got. Uh, or you're going to feel cheated, right? You're going to feel like this wasn't what I what I signed up for. But if I give you something that's too similar to what you just got, then you're going to feel cheated in a different way, right? Like I already have your base game. You need to give me something new. And so you have to constantly sort of ride this wave of it's like what you've got, but it's different enough to make you want to get the new thing. And the way that I resolve that paradox is to, you have to understand what the core tension of your game is. Right, you have to understand what fundamentally your game is about. Like every game that you make, there's this, there, you know, we, what we do as designers is create and relieve tension in very specific ways. Right, and and sometimes that can be feel counterintuitive to people. Like, you know, wait, why am I creating tension? Why am I creating discomfort? But that's where the fun comes from. Right, so uh, let's take a, a generic example of uh, uh, chess. Right, in chess, the objective of the game is to capture the opponent's king. I could just reach across the table and grab the king and then ta-da, I did it. Game, game over, right? 
but that's not really a fun experience for anybody. And so the uh, the design of chess creates all of these restrictive rules that, okay, you know, horses move this way and castles can do this weird thing and I need to protect my king while moving to your king. And that creates this tension of making it very hard to get to what I want to do, which is capture your king. Uh, and that tension of, you know, can I do it? Can I do it? And the release of like, yes, I did it. Or, oh, I lost. And that makes you want to play again. It makes you want to keep going. That's the fundamentals of tension is that position and tension of protecting your pieces while trying to take out their pieces. Right. And so that once you know that what you, you know, what your core tension is, you could take people on these crazy journeys where as lo- the new things always add to or shift focus on that core tension. So when I'm trying to reach out to my audience, right, I need to know that what they're looking for and ascension, the core tension is, is that that mechanic I talked about at the beginning, which is that ever changing center row, right? The fact that the cards are always going to change and that we all have access to the same limited pool is the fundamental tension of ascension. And every mechanic that I've ever done over now this last decade always takes into account how do I either change that and, and add to that tension, or if I'm going to relieve from that tension, what can I counterbalance it with? Um, and we can talk about specifics and stuff if you want. So when I reach out to my audiences, I always want to know that I'm going to deliver to them something like that. And that ensures that they're going to, A, want to come back and check out the next thing, or B, even if they don't happen to like one of the expansions uh, because they don't like that specific thing, that they're going to be willing to give me another shot and go to the next thing and see uh, what what gets delivered. Yeah, for sure. And backing up just a little bit, let, let's talk through like what what has to happen for a game to be considered part of the series? Like, are you thinking about artwork? Are you thinking about the world that the games are existing in? Are you thinking about the gameplay and the, the mechanisms and the systems? Like, tell me about what needs to, to be in place for this to be considered a, a part of the series. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, it's a great question. So it, this, this can vary from product to product. For Ascension, we, uh, we made the choice that every, every expansion would be compatible with everything else, right? So you could shuffle any two Ascension decks together and the game is just gonna work. In the app, I never thought this was possible when I first started working on the game, but in the app, you can combine, I think we've got 14 or 13 or 14 of the expansions in the app, and you could shuffle all of it together into a giant virtual deck and have all kinds of crazy stuff go on, but everything works together. So the game engines is compatible. That's one of the one of the rules that we use for what brings it in. And yes, we also have the rule of it's all in the same world. Um, and so everything is uh, part of the Ascension universe. We have similar characters, some of our major characters, like, you know, Master Dartha and Emery, and, you know, the, they come through from faction to faction uh, and, and, and set to set, and you'll see them again and again. There's an ongoing story that gets told. And, and you know, this also ties into a little bit of the, um, we didn't really get into sort of the downsides of making a, uh, a series, is that it, you know, it provides a lot of restrictions on you, right? You, in theory, you want to be able to continue, uh, if you're going to continue the world, the story, the art style, those things matter, need to be consistent. And also it requires a lot more work up front uh, to be able to build a foundation, right? If you're going to build a foundation that you're going to set up a tent and it's going to have one thing, that's a certain level of foundation you need. If you're going to set up a skyscraper where you're going to keep building layer after layer after layer on top of it, you've got to spend a lot more time making sure that foundation is sound. And that's what I think about when I think about trying to build a game that's going to stand the test of time. You need to know how will this be able to grow? What is the design space that's available to be explored? Because some games are not designed to be able to expand on, right? The game is simple and it's designed to just be kind of played and put away. Whereas if you want to make a game that's going to, someone is going to be happy to play 10 years later. And I now have, thanks to the app, I have metrics on people that have spent, you know, literal years of their life, like full years (laughs) playing Ascension. Uh, And that's a, you know, you have a lot, you have a high, a high burden to sort of be able to make that 
function and uh, and build something that's that's great there. So when I first started, I had three years of content plan for Ascension, both story and uh, kind of high level mechanics anyway. Um, and so I and I thought I and I didn't do that because I thought I was going to be making Ascension for three years. I did that because I wanted to make sure that the foundation was strong and just so that I would know kind of where I would want to go. And I never thought in a million years that I would still be making Ascension three years later, let alone now 10 years later. So uh, it's been an interesting ride. Right. But you bring up a really good point, And that's at least plan for the best, like have that idea in mind of, okay, what if this game does do really well? What if it goes viral? What if I sell 10,000 copies right out of the gate? Like what would be next? And, and I think there's a lot of value in just planning for that, even if it never happens, even if it's just a, you know, a pipe dream, it's still super helpful just in case it does happen. And if it doesn't happen, maybe you can take some of those ideas and turn them into other games later. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. There is no, I, you know, I have, I have what, you know, I, I, I I sort of call it my graveyard of game ideas, which is things that got cut from my initial games or things that haven't been finished. But it's not really a graveyard, right? It's a it's a fertile garden. It's an area where seeds can get planted, and eventually I'll be able to pull them out. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about how important it is to you know be very um, you know parsimonious and very precise with your initial game set and rules, and and try to pull anything out from the game that's going to distract people from the core tension, and it's going to make it harder for people to learn. But every single thing that you pull out, every rejected rule and rejected design and rejected concept, is an, a great fodder for future projects and future expansions. And that's a lot of where those first couple of years of, of things came from. We had we had a bunch of those mechanics, like uh, the fate mechanic was one of my favorites, which is whenever a card shows up in the center row, it does something right away and has this big impact on the game that creates uncertainty and, and excitement. But it was too much for the base game. So I removed it for the first expansion. And, you know, and we had all of these different things that uh, would would provide great content. And so when you're thinking about your initial games, I, I do recommend that you spend some time kind of planning you know at least an outline of like what what would come next and how would you build on this if you were given the opportunity to do so uh but i also want to caution against because my my fear is that sometimes people will find that to be too intimidating and i think trying to plan everything all up front can sometimes dissuade you from you know going forward and launching anything so i think spending some time thinking about the future and setting up for for success is great but also you know, don't uh, don't let that slow you down from being able to put stuff out there, because the best way to be a game designer is to actually put games out there. You'll learn the lessons and you'll be able to sort of, you know, solve solve the success problem uh, later. You know, again, we, we went way beyond three years. We had way more concerns uh, than we thought we were going to have to have. Uh, but those are those are good problems to have to solve. Yeah, and that's a really, really great point. And then going back to, you know, the idea of discarded content, discarded ideas, I think you called it fertile ground. So I guess that would make you a farmer or you could call it a graveyard and that would make you a necromancer. So it's, you know, whatever metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's great. I mean, that's, and I mean, I literally, I have a list of, of, of hundreds of design ideas and concepts. And this is another thing I always advise people is like, write things down. Uh, every, I tell the story uh, in my book and, and other places, but it's a, you know, we had a, uh, we had a game uh, called, uh, we had a game we made, a digital trading card game that I co-designed with Richard Garfield called Soulforge, um, which was a, uh, a really cool project. And we were working on the set two of that. And we were, had a big game design session happening. Uh, we had a, uh, you know, a bunch of us all around the table and, you know, it was going on for hours and we had a lot of really good ideas. We we're making really good progress. And I saw somebody writing things down because I, I really, I always emphasize the importance of writing things down. Uh, and then we went to, uh, we were hungry and, you know, we were like, all right, we, we got our ideas. We got a basic framework down. Let's go get some Chinese food. 
we go get food, we start working on other projects, we go back to working on Ascension and a bunch of other things. And then like a, a week later, we're like, okay, now we're ready to like actually start implementing some of the Soulforge ideas. So nobody remembered what we were talking about. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. We got this, the notepad I saw, you know, one of the team was working on. So I go and look at the notepad and the top of the notepad says, Hunan beef, Kung Pao chicken, fried rice. <laughs> And I realized that he had not been writing down our design ideas. He'd been writing down the Chinese order he wanted. <laughs> and so we lost we lost the entire day's worth of, of design and we had to start over. Uh, and so now it's a sort of shorthand around the office. Somebody will just start shout out Hunan beef anytime we need to start writing things down. Um, and uh, but even if you're working on your own, uh, it's a great idea to just like have a notebook with you, write down your discarded game designs or fractions of designs or things that come to you randomly because you never know when those things are going to be useful. Uh, and it's one of the great ways when I think about, you know, people like, oh, I'm not creative. I can't come up with ideas. That's not true. You come up with ideas all the time. You just most of the time forget them. It's writing them down gives you the opportunity to develop them and come back to them and then say like, oh, okay, now this is the time. I mean, I've had ideas that literally were incubating for eight years plus before they come back. And now, okay, now that fits in with this brand new thing. And now I've got it and I can develop it and build it somewhere. Right. I, I highly, highly recommend this as well. I, what I do, I carry around note cards, just little, you know, four by six, three, whatever they are, the normal size of note cards. And anytime I have ideas, I'll write those down. And then I've got a notebook that um, that's actually, it's made for like recipes. And so all the, all the pages inside the little plastic, whatever you, you can slide note cards in there really, really easily. It fits perfectly. And so that's my system. It, it's worked uh, pretty well, but yeah, any system at all, just if you write on the back of napkins and just figure out a way to you know, store your napkins, any system at all will, will help you immensely to not forget ideas and then be able to come back and revisit those ideas later. Once maybe things have changed, maybe context is different. Maybe you have a new idea, something along those lines. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a big, a big uh, keystone habit to, to develop. That's going to be incredibly useful for you in, in all fields of life in my experience, but for sure as a game designer. For sure. Uh, another thing I want to highlight as far as uh, a game in a series is also the experience and how you want the players to feel. I think Matt Leacock has done a tremendous job with uh, Pandemic in doing this and so many different themes, whether it's Cthulhu or you're building dams to stop water or, you know, all these new ideas he keeps coming out with. It's the same system with some different tweaks. But the main thing, it's the same tension. You feel like, okay, the world is about to end. And whether Cthulhu's doing it or a virus is doing it, you're, you still feel that tension of we have to run around the board doing all these things. That's something that I was thinking about for my hunted game series is like, I always want the player to feel like they're on the run. Something is hunting them down, whether it's aliens on a spaceship or terrorists in a skyscraper or some kind of fantasy monster in a Lord of the Rings style world, whatever. But the experience is always the same no matter which game you pick up. You know that that's going to be the, the central tension. I think that's something also just to keep in mind if you're designing one of these games. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, look, at the end of the day, feelings are the only metric that matters. We are, you know, we are creating as games, a feeling factory. Uh, that is, that is what, you know, we could talk about numbers. We could talk about mechanics. We could talk about theme. We could talk about art. Everything that there has to serve the feeling that you want to generate in your audience. And that's both players or in the case of streaming games, people watching, like what is the emotion? What is the experience that you want to create? And so absolutely like you want, if you, if you know where that core is right and that, and, and can describe it in those terms, you can take people in all kinds of directions uh, and have them follow along uh, because you're delivering that, that emotion and that, that what people are really looking for. Right. And let's get a little more into your design process. Let's talk about these standalone expansions. First of all, what is that exactly? Like if, in case that's a, a new phrase, what is a standalone expansion? 
Yeah, a standalone expansion basically means that you can buy this expansion and it's its own game. It stands alone, right? If I never heard of Ascension before, like so, the, I think the last Ascension product we got on shelves uh, as of this recording is a uh, uh, Skulls and Sails, which is a pirate-themed Ascension set. You actually have a pirate ship that moves around the center row and can attack each other, and there's a kraken and all kinds of cool stuff. If you've never heard of Ascension but you love pirates, you could just pick up Skulls and Sails and play it, and you don't need anything else. Everything you need to play is right there. Or if you're a huge Ascension fan and you just wanted to add some more pirate into your life, you can take that and shuffle it in uh, with the rest of the Ascension sets you have or any given Ascension set and uh, and play it and it works fine. So that's what a, a, a standalone says. I can play it by itself. And expansion means it also adds on to the rest of the product. Gotcha. And so what are you thinking about when you're designing one of these, when you're trying to get one of these to market, both from a design standpoint and a publishing standpoint to make sure it really fits in the series, but then it's also doing something new, something different? Right. So the, the, the most important thing is what I mentioned earlier, which is like understanding where your fundamental tension is and how this interacts with it. So for example, with Skulls and Sails, the one I just started talking about, um, one of the major tensions in Ascension that uh, is that you're always trying to acquire cards from the center row, but some of the cards are monsters that require power to defeat. And some of the cards are runes, are, are um, heroes and constructs which require runes. And so when you're building your deck, you have to like balance how much power do I want? How many runes do I want? Do I want to focus on one of these and it, and it costs the other? Do I want an even balance? With the pirates, uh, with the, uh, the, the ships that every player gets in Skulls and Sails, uh, you have a crew rating. And the crew of your ship can actually, you can spend crew to acquire or defeat uh, any card, doesn't matter whether it's a monster or, or a hero. And so it removes that tension of, oh, I don't have enough of this specific kind of resource. So when anytime you remove attention from your game, you then have to add a new counter tension. And the counter tension is the ships only can be on one space at a time. They can only interact with the space they're on and they move one space around the board at each turn. And so you have to now have this positional relation advantage of, okay, I need to get my ship in the right place to be able to get the card I want or run away from the card that I want, right? Because now we also made the ships can raid each other and you can steal treasure from each other or there's monsters that can take stuff from you. And so now I take the core tension of the game, which is you know one of these fundamentals of like, how do I get to interact with the center of the way I want and, and introduce the new tension of positional relations and how that works. And so whenever I'm thinking about a set, I, every single set has that question answered somehow. Do I, am I getting rid of attention? In which case I'm giving you a new counter tension or am I sort of tweaking or, you know, adding new tension to it? Like when I mentioned our very first expansion, uh, Return of the Fallen had the fate mechanic, the fact that a new card can show up as soon as I buy something and have an instant effect that changes the game. Now all of a sudden adds this extra drama around every purchase I make and when I choose to make that purchase. Uh, and so that that is the number one thing when I'm thinking about new expansion is how do I play with this tension? Uh, what's going to make it uh, really be exciting and new? Okay, so it's almost like a zero sum idea. It's like if I take one thing away, I have to add one thing back. If I take two things away, I need to add two things back in. Is that kind of how you think about it? Um, I don't know if I think about it in, the, in in numbers like that. It's just that it's either everything that you do has to serve the core tension, which is also to, to, to your point, it's also serving that core emotion, right? There's, there's the, the, the excitement around what card could come up next, the, uh, the fear around somebody taking the card I want before I can get to it, the building of, of, of excitement as my deck gets better and I get access to new and more powerful things and I, I get to grow and kind of try to, you know, try to race against other people. Like serving those emotional cores is the most important thing. And so if 100%, if I'm taking tension away, I have to add new tension that contrasts with it. Or if I'm just adding tension, you know, through new mechanisms, then that's great. And that can, you know, that can create its own thing. So it's not a, not necessarily a one-to-one. -one, it's just sort of keeping your eye on the ball, if you will. 
Okay, cool. So that was the, the first thing. What's the second thing? So the second thing is when you're thinking about a standalone expansion, as opposed to just an expansion where it's, you know, I'm just adding it into the base game. You also need to think about where is, how, uh, where is your complexity level going? Right. If I'm just saying, as we do with Shards of Infinity, that you're everything you have to buy the base game and have played the base game before you can buy the expansion, then just adding new stuff with the expansion is no problem because they've already learned everything from the base game. They're ready to go. So adding anything new I add, that's all they have to learn. When you're talking about a standalone, I need to be thinking about not just the player who's been with us from the beginning, but also the new person who just showed up and likes pirates and picked up the game off the shelf, right? Uh, and so that means I need to be thinking about how complex is it. And one of the things I do there is we rotate mechanics and uh, and some of the more complex things in and out of the game. Uh, so, for example, when you know if you had to learn everything that was all ten years of of expansions, we had a dreamscape mechanic where you had a new insight resource that you could store up from turn to turn and spend, or we had uh, you know a different kind of uh, uh, temples from one of our sets where you could like we were trying to like hot potato take control of different temples from people from our uh gift of the elements and and uh uh getting the name of the expansion right now uh uh anyway so the the value of those uh all of those mechanics together is just too much and so you have to be very careful about if you're making a lot of new things and making a, com a set very complex then um you will need to take a lot out as well to help make sure that new players can come in. If you have one that's simpler, uh, Valley of the Ancients is the one that has the uh, the temples in it. But we have some of our expansions are simpler, like um, uh, uh, Gift of the Elements is you know no huge new mechanics, mostly just card rules. And so that one we could kind of play with a lot more of our old stuff. And so balancing out how many mechanics you're going to put in uh, versus how many you're going to kind of take out and rotate through. Uh, is another thing as you're building games over years to make sure that you don't just become this like mess of complexity creep that nobody's ever going to start with. Gotcha. All right, let's go into like the publishing side of a standalone expansion. One thing we said as a, as a positive is that you know the box size, you know the insert size, like you know all the different things. But are there any downsides to standalone expansions as opposed to just doing the normal expansion, you know, kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, you're going to have people for whom... Uh, if you've bought every Ascension expansion that we ever made, you have an awful lot of starting decks and always available cards and honor tokens, uh, all the things that you, you know, really don't need to buy, uh, you know, and so for those players, they can sometimes get a little frustrated because they're, uh, you know, I'm, 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 you know, buying a $40 box game when all I really need is like the new stuff, which maybe I, you know, I, we could retail for less, uh, you know, like Ascension uh, or Shards of Infinity, for example, right? The base game is only $20. The expansions are often $10 or, you know, or $20. So it's way cheaper, way easier for people to access. Uh, so by, by stepping up to a, a standalone level, uh, you end up necessarily raising your price and production uh, value of each product. Uh, and so that can be a downside for, uh, as a, as a publisher and, uh, and for some of your more invested players. Yeah. Something to, to really think about, uh, maybe compare and contrast, uh, Ascension with Shards of Infinity, Infinity. Give me just some like different things you've learned uh, over the years. You said Shards of Infinity came out of a lot of learning, a lot of mistakes made and like, okay, how do we do things differently? So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk first about some of the lessons we learned from you know, Ascension in the first couple of years. So in the first couple of years, we had a, a vision for the game where it was going to be uh, it was sort of inspired by, by Magic's uh, blocks, where we would do a big set and then a small set, and those would like be designed to like primarily pair together and tell a complete story arc 
and then uh, move forward to the next year where it would be another big set, another small set, and that would be a new story arc, uh, which sounded great in theory. Uh, and what we learned after doing this for three years uh, is that the small sets sold like half as much as the big sets. They were still standalones, but they were only $20 and only a st the standalone part was only for two players instead of four. And people just did not want to buy them. And it took us about as much work to make the you know, small standalone as it did the big standalone. And so we uh, we realized that was a mistake and we backed away from that strategy. Uh, and then we ended up doing only the big box sets as our standalones. We still did some small like expansion content that wasn't standalone, um, promo packs and whatnot, but uh, and uh, but that was uh, a key lesson was like, wow, this costs us as much work and as much time and we're selling half as much, so let's not do that anymore. Um, as far as the uh, contrasting and, and things we learned from, uh, for Shards of Infinity, um, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of what, you know, is the other kind of downside to um, to making games that expand, which is like, you know, once we built in years and years of content for Ascension, we kind of need to keep it uh, compatible. And so we need to think about everything, how it interacts with everything that came before. With Shards, we really wanted to have that opportunity to do something different. So Ascension is one, you know, Ascension is actually a great game for people who are not like core gamers. And a lot of people have come to me over the years saying Ascension was kind of what brought them into gaming because it's not very directly competitive. Yes, you're fighting over the same space in the center row, but I'm not attacking other players directly, generally speaking. I am usually just kind of, I can complete my own strategy. I will get better over time. I'll earn a bunch of points and then we'll find out who wins at the end. Uh, but with Shards of Infinity, we wanted to do something that was like more directly uh, attacking, right? You actually attack and kill other players. That's one of the way, you know, the main way you win. And we were able to sort of make the game far more um, fast, far more aggressive. The game can go faster. The game can have bigger swings, right? One of the challenges in Ascension is, and, and true with most deck building games, is like you can't give people a lot of power level except at the very, very high cost. And once you start accessing that power level, the game snowballs out of control pretty quickly, right? If you're able to get a big, a really big, powerful seven cost or eight cost or whatever, you know, card up front, the nature of a deck building game is it's iterative. Every time I get a better card, that makes it easier for me to get even better cards and so on, right? And this is something every deck building game has to wrestle with. The reason we, in the Shards of Infinity mechanic, uh, created mastery, which is that that process of leveling yourself up, you can only level yourself up one point per turn. And so it naturally gates the progression. So we can make ludicrously powerful effects at 10 mastery, 20 mastery, and then actually built into everybody's starting deck at 30 mastery, you have a card that just wins you the game immediately because we know that the game will automatically pace itself. No matter how many cool cards you're able to buy, the game uh, can throttle and kind of control the pacing over time, which was a huge asset and let us do a ton of new awesome design things. I know I shifted a little bit to just design lessons as opposed to product lessons. I wasn't sure which one you were going for, um, but I'll, I'll talk about both. Um, because as a product standpoint, the reason we made only uh, expansions, but not standalone expansions for Shards of Infinity was more just we wanted to try it. And again, it frees us up to do more cool things. Like we're, we're telling a story arc in Shards of Infinity that will go through and, you know, guarantee that you have to have everything before it. So you have to, you understand the whole story as it goes. And in fact, I'm really proud of our most recent expansion, uh, Shadow of Salvation, which came out a couple months ago, where we actually added a cooperative pve campaign to the game so a game that was 
hyper competitive. You're all trying to kill each other. Now, all of a sudden, you can actually work together and you go through a choose your own adventure storybook. And we actually had a professional voice actor read the story for you. You can get that for free at stoneblade.com. So you can actually follow along and level up your decks together and fight these bosses that all have their own things. And so it let us take people on a even more varied journey uh, than we would be able to do with Ascension standalone expansions. Very cool. Now, with Shards of Infinity, did you have more than three years planned out? Did you kind of learn that lesson from Ascension? Did you did you create a 10-year plan for Shards? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we did not. Uh, I did not. I, I, this is, I guess this helps to reinforce that lesson. Like, yeah, we had, it, honestly, probably not. Yeah, it was about it was about two to three years also. Same, same, same arc uh, and concept for it. Um, I think just trying to plan more than that far ahead is just kind of... Uh, it, you, it's just nearly impossible, I think. Like what things are going to change. Like we learn a lot from what people like, right? Like part of the the making a cooperative expansion for a you know competitive deck building game like we did was an enormous amount of work. And if we were going to plan five years ahead and say, oh well, we'll do more cooperative expansions, we don't know if people were going to like it, right? We didn't know if that was going to be something that people want to play over the long term and putting in the amount of work and effort. I mean, it caught, it took it, it probably three times as much work to do that version of the game than it did even the base version of the game, because every encounter that you play in a cooperative thing is sort of like its own little mini game design that we had to do. And we had to make, you know, half a dozen of those to start and, and give people different ways to interact. So I think this is another one of those cases where you just don't want to do too much work up front. You want to do enough that you know you've got the space to design, that you have a vision, uh, you know, especially when it comes to like your first expansion and your second expansion, you kind of have to be working on those and ready to go before you know for sure that your game is going to be a success. You cut, If you wait till you, after your game is a success to start on your first expansion, it's going to be way too long. You're going to let the line go slack. You're going to lose a lot of people's attention and they may forget about your game. And you may miss your opportunity. So those first couple expansions are critical to have in your mind. After that, I think the further out you get, the more you actually want to wait, you know, have ideas, but wait before you commit until you get to get real feedback from real customers and real players and, and learn from them. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Uh, going back to the game I've been working on, the series I've been working on. So one advantage I have is that every theme is different. And so I'm just trying to think through, because I've got like, I think the next three years or so planned out as far as games that I want to do, themes that I want to, to take on. But what's great about that is I think through the experience, okay, you're by yourself, you're on the run. And then I think, okay, what movies have done this well? And what movies that did this well did really well. And then I can kind of take ideas for thematic changes that, that I can then turn into the game uh, and, and tweak mechanisms based on, you know, who is chasing you, terrorists chasing you versus aliens chasing you versus a, a evil horror film, you know, killer that he's chasing. It's going to be very, very different. And so that's one thing that it's been helpful. It's just thinking through all the different thematic things that you can do uh, differently as well. And so have you run into things that, that have made the planning stage uh, a little bit easier where you can kind of figure things out and go, oh, okay, here's, because you were talking about story, right? Have you kind of figured out points along the, the story? I think, I think Legend of the Five Rings did a great job with this years ago, if you're familiar with that one. They oh, figured yeah. out like a huge storyline and then they, every expansion was like following the story. So is that something you're doing? Yeah, so this is a great question. Uh, one, before I, I dive into answering that, I want to I want to just highlight something you said, which is that, you know, this idea of using movies as a touchstone, I think is a great one. It actually came up in one of my own, I did a podcast interview with uh, Keith Baker, who created the, the Eberron world and uh, a bunch of great role-playing games. Uh, and he does that where he'll like use movies as a reference for that core emotional touchstone. 
like okay i want you to feel like you're you know in aliens and you're on the ship and you're you know you got weapons and you're but there's this terrifying thing around you and that's the emotion i want to create i think that's a great way for designers to hook around the stuff they're doing and, and as you said sort of if you pick a genre you can kind of get ideas for like how people have twisted that genre or you know dealt with sequels and stuff so i think that's great um then uh, tying into the, the bigger question of how do you think about story in an expandable world in a game that's going to last, uh, this is something where my thinking actually evolved a lot over the years. Um, I, I've always thought of myself as a mechanics first designer, right? I love creating the cool systems, creating the mechanical tensions, creating something that's like super fun and engaging. And then I will figure out, okay, what story works well for that? And then I will tweak and they'll, you know, the story and the mechanics will inform each other. And I'll, I may have a story idea in mind, but it's really the mechanics that drive everything. Once the game is super fun, then we will find a story that works and, and, you know, make a few adjustments if we need to. I have really worked to invert that process over the last several years. Um, and uh, because one, uh, it's fun and it's a great creative challenge. And two, obviously stories, you know, are a huge driver and they really can, People remember stories sto uh, and, and it's a thing that can kind of stick with them. And you mentioned L5R, right? Whatever you think about the mechanics of that game, they absolutely nailed it on a story that you as a player felt invested in, that you got to continue to connect to. Uh, and that kept people playing, kept people hooked for many, many years. And so you're now seeing over the last, really only the last two years, I think the, uh, the sort of stone blade philosophy shift of let's see if we can be as good at telling stories and put stories first in the same way that we are on mechanics. So why does why did we make a, a heavily themed pirate set like Skulls and Sails? It seems like a really big break. Well, we wanted to say we love pirates. Let's see what happens if we start with the story and we're going to have a pirate adventure. Where would we end up? And that was the driving point for it. And it took us a while. It took us two years to build that expansion, whereas normally it takes maybe a quarter of that to do an expansion. Um, so that was one of the ways we did it. And then this storytelling that we did in shards of infinity we built you know not only did we build the the, the two plus year story arc uh, kind of from the from the beginning but we also are telling the story in a lot of new ways right we i mentioned we have a storybook that you could listen to and you can play through yourself and 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 engage with it on a, on a totally different level um, than ever before and that was one of the main drivers like what's the plot here what are the characters doing how are they growing what is the tension around that story part uh, and I found that to be pretty awesome. And we're looking at all kinds of new cool ways to take story as a main component and say, where do we go from here? Like we're, we're even investigating things like what if we took the Ascension world at, you know, out of it and we started a new world using the Ascension mechanics and what would that look like and how would we build those things? And, and so I think you can take people even with the uh, exact same mechanics or very, very close to the same mechanics giving it a new story can change everything. If you look at um, like the Munchkin game line, I think does a really good job with this where they'll just change the themes and now it's Kung Fu Munchkin and Space Munchkin and, you know, Marvel Munchkin. And, you know, they've taken a brand and a, and a game, a core mechanic and been able to sort of re-envision it and represent it to people in, in really exciting ways. Right. Legend of the Five Rings is just such an amazing case study in what's possible. And I can't imagine the monumental effort and work it went into it. But for anyone listening, this is not familiar. So basically, L5R, Legend of Five Rings, uh, they would have these expansions that would come out. And then they would wait to see what would happen in all the tournaments and all the tournament play and all the game stores and conventions, all these different things. And they would take all the data from, you know, the different factions that won. There were tons of different families. This is kind of like a, you know, samurai Japan kind of thing going on. And so they would take all the information, all the data for factions that won and things that happened and the way tournaments played out. And then they would use that information in creating the next 
expansion. And so if, you know, this, the turtle family, I can't remember all the names, we'll say the turtle, if the turtle family, you know, won a bunch in this tournament, then maybe the turtle family has something happen to them in the story that leads into the expansion for the, for the next expansion. And it was so amazing. And then they would use Gen Con as kind of a way to reveal like all the different things, ways that the, the next part of the story was going to play out. And this warlord was going to change factions so that maybe they you were in the turtle faction. Now they're in the swan. Fa- it was such an amazing story that they were telling and they were using the players and the tournaments and the gameplay to actually move the story along. And I think it was just phenomenal. And honestly, Justin, if, if, if a modern company was going to be able to do something like that, I think Stoneblade would be uh, one that could actually pull it off. And so if you ever want to do something like that, man, I, I, I'm on board. I think it would be amazing. I'd love to have you back on the show. We can talk about it. <laughs> but, well, funny, uh, funny, funny story. Um, I, I wasn't really going to talk about it because I kind of wanted to just keep it for people that got there. But uh, since you brought it up, uh, in Shards of Infinity Shadow of Salvation, if you get through the storybook, at the very end, we have a special link for everybody that gets to the end of that story. And you go into our website and you can then tell us what happened and vote on what you would want to happen in the Shards of Infinity story. And those votes have already been coming in for the last several months. And we have used those to build the next expansion. So we are literally doing that right now. Uh, and we wanted to kind of keep it on the low key and make it so that only the people that were there uh, could be a part of it. But even at the time that this comes out, you'll still have the ability to influence it uh, if you play through the Shadow of Salvation expansion and let us know how the story should go. Uh, and so it's been this way because I agree with you. I love that sort of thing. Uh, and we're doing it right now. And we also did it even to some degree uh, when we first started um, with Ascension, the very first year after Ascension release, we had a, our world championships at Gen Con. And Ascension was originally, the first set was originally called Chronicle of the God Slayer. And the plot was that you were trying to defeat this fallen god that was wreaking havoc. Uh, and so the person who won our first tournament, our first world championships, became Aaron the God Slayer. And he showed up in one of our future expansions. And he became a part of our lore as the one that displayed this fallen god. Uh, and so you've got an opportunity and we still have it as an ongoing thing. This will actually be the first year we don't do it because uh, Gen Con is, uh, is not going to be happening, but uh, maybe we'll find a way to do it virtually uh, where, you know, you can become a part of our story and the winner of that tournament enters the game and becomes a character and we do an art likeness of you and you work with us on the building the card. So I love these kinds of interactions. We have built them in a variety of ways, not yet quite as ambitious as, uh, as what L5R did, but uh, we are... We are continuing to be a part of that, and and I I am uh, I'm very excited about some of the the future plans we have that are more ambitious, which I'll be happy to talk about more uh, after they start to come to life. Yeah, that would be great. It'd be great to have you back on the show to talk through you know different things you found, different ideas, different things you want to do. Like it's just such a cool concept of allowing the game's players, the game's community, to actually influence the direction of the game of the story. I, I, just, I just love that, and so yeah, I'm uh, excited. I'm excited to see kind of how it all turns out, and it'd be great to have you on the show for a, a future episode. Uh, switching gears a little bit, let's go back and talk about maybe some more disadvantages. What are some other things that you've learned, maybe some little nuggets of wisdom as far as you know, games in a series, things that maybe didn't work out so well? You, you mentioned the smaller you know, expansions didn't do so well. So you, all right, we're cutting those and we'll do something different. What else? What other kind of things along those lines? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So in addition to learning that the, the sort of smaller two player expansions were not, uh, we're not doing it. Um, I think we've also learned a lot about, um, you know, I sort of mentioned this idea of, of complexity creep and, you know, that's one of the more powerful things too. I think our year two expansions, um, storm of souls and, um, the, uh, immortal heroes. While I am like sort of 
proud of those. And I think there's really great things there. I think we ended up by the time we got to that set four, I think we had too much going on um, for the people who are like, so for some people, those are their favorite expansions because they're like super hardcore gamers and they love having all the strategies and tons of ways to outplay their opponents. And so if you're really, really into it, it's great. But for new players, it was very, very hard. It was just a little bit too much going on. And so, you know, just sort of reemphasizing that lesson of don't give you know don't make people drink from a fire hose if you're going to make standalone expansions you know you want to sort of drip feed the new stuff even if you're making regular expansions you know a couple of new things in each expansion is enough too much new uh while it feels like you just want to overwhelm people give them all this awesome new stuff uh, if you do too much you're going to actually hurt people's experiences and so one of the ways that we've solved that problem uh that has we've gotten tried to be really creative with is um in uh, with sort of optional add-on rules. Um, so we did this, I think we did a, a phenomenal job with this in um, the very first expansion to Shards of Infinity, um, uh, which was called Relics of the Future. Uh, and that where we added, the main mechanic we added were relics, where each of the individual player characters, you have a, a player character you pick, um, you have two possible relics that you could get when you get to 10 mastery, uh, which is sort of relics of the future. You have this vision of the future uh, and each one sort of dictates a different strategy would go on. And then once you get that, it kind of drives your behavior. And that's like that and a bunch of new cards was was plenty for people to deal with. But we also added in a ton of like optional new play modes. We added in rules for single player uh, uh challenges so you could actually play the game single player we added in uh three player bloodbath rules and team rules and uh, a whole variety of new things that people could engage with all for 10 bucks but because they were optional rules because they were optional ways to play add-ons if you will that created a great way for it to be like not overwhelming you could just play the game with this one cool new thing and some new cards and then be able to then add on more stuff as you went um, it's possible to go overboard with this mechanic, uh, but it's a great little tool to have in your tool belt to be able to make sure that I'm not overwhelming players that just get exposed to this, but I am giving, making sure that there's plenty of content for people that are looking for more stuff. Gotcha. All right, so let's change gears just a little bit. Let's talk about what it looks like to pivot. So you have Ascension Tactics on Kickstarter right now, which is a game in the series. It's got the same worlds, you know, art, all these different things going for it that's similar, but at the same time, a very, very different game. So tell me about that one, and then tell me about what it looks like to totally pivot and do something very, very different. Tell me kind of maybe things that you're uh, thinking about, things that you're maybe afraid of. Like, I don't know if this is going to go well. <laughs> tell me about all the different aspects that go along with that. Oh, yes. No, equal parts excitement and fear, my friend. That's uh, that's what comes with the uh, more ambitious projects. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about Ascension Tactics. I think the what so one of the major pivots here uh, is that Ascension Tactics is a new game. It is in the Ascension universe. It uses a lot of the fundamental Ascension mechanics, but it is not designed to be shuffled in with everything else. It's its own standalone product. Uh, so you we wouldn't call it an expansion. It's, you know, a game in the Ascension universe. Uh, and so that is a huge shift uh, and part of the reason why. And, and the other huge shift is it's a miniatures game. We took the we basically took the best of deck building in the Ascension universe and the best of tactical miniatures games and merged them together. Now, before I started my company, I think I mentioned it earlier that I made I designed the World of Warcraft miniatures game and I used to be a big miniatures player growing up and played Warhammer and Heroclix and all kinds of stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I was able to take a lot of my experience and love of that genre and bring it to life in ascension tactics and figuring out that tension of combining the two and how do you make these things play well together and mesh and create something that's actually very new was incredibly exciting we've been working on it for 18 months now uh and then of course there's the scariness and excitement of like 
going back to Kickstarter, right? Making an attack, uh, making, a, you know, we release Ascension expansions. We don't go to Kickstarter. We just release them because, you know, we know what we're doing. We can afford to make it and we know our fans are going to love it. When it comes to something like this, it costs so much money to make a miniatures game where right? we have to get them all sculpted and molds and all those things. So it's a huge, huge um, outlay that we just couldn't do on our own. So we have to go to Kickstarter and go to our fans. And, and so there's always like, you know, an excitement and fear and all that that comes with that. So we're trying to make sure that we deliver, you know, crazy over deliver on what the game does, not just in miniatures and figures, but in replayability. And we've created scenarios and we put, you know, we talk about sort of those optional rules, right? We built a, an entire scenario book that comes with the game that has not only the normal, like, two-player kind of pvp game but also cooperative modes single player modes three player modes four player mode like everything we could think of to make sure that people got the best possible experience out of this gate uh and so yeah there's i i could talk about it in a lot more detail but I'll, I'll just take a breath and pause there because it's it's so much going on that uh, i'm both excited and a little scared of yeah very cool give me like the the background on this you know you're thinking about the series you're thinking about ascension and then one day you just all of a sudden thought you know what we should make this into a miniatures game like tell me how the game came to be yeah yeah so it's not uh it was certainly not a one day kind of thing it's something you know as i mentioned i've, I've loved miniatures games i've designed miniatures games and I, it's something i've always kind of wanted to do and a lot of it came down to you know about two years ago we started thinking seriously around okay the products that we're going to start working on now are going to be part of ascension's 10th anniversary i mean that's a crazy thing to think about. I never would have imagined that I'd be able to continue making Ascension 10 years later, but I also don't want to just, you know, just release another expansion, right? I want to do something that's really dramatic, that's really different. And we've gotten more and more ambitious over the years, right? That, I think the, the Skulls and Sills set we released last year, that pirate set, is the most ambitious Ascension set we've ever done. Like adding pirate ships and movement and all that stuff was a big deal, but it was still, it, I almost made it its own game. It almost was not an Ascension game. Uh, but then we did make it still compatible and we found a good way to make it work. And now we're building something that is clearly in the Ascension universe, clearly has this Ascension as the bones of the game, but is something that's new and really shakes things up. And that was really my goal was, you know, 10 years ago when we released Ascension, you know, deck building games were brand new. I mean, it was literally just, you know, maybe two or three deck building games that were existed at all. And we brought something very new to the table and that was exciting. Now, 10 years later, I mean, deck building games are a dime a dozen, right? I mean, there's, I think we make some of the best ones, but I'm a little biased, but there's a ton of them out there. And to be able to now take what I consider to be the building block of a deck building game and then add it to something else to create something that's truly unique was just an exciting thing. And that, you know, that maybe is another lesson to pull out of this. Um, when I talk about how do you make games that last, a lot of the questions that we've talked about are like, well, what does it mean from the marketplace and from a production standpoint and from a design standpoint, what do your customers do? But there's something else that's important here too, which is your own personal passion. Right. You need to stay excited. If you're making games for a decade or more and you're constantly releasing new stuff in the same world, there's a real danger that you would get, you know, bored of that and you wouldn't want to do it anymore or you'd run out of ideas. That's never going to happen to me because I'm willing to take that like risk and say, I'm excited about this. Do you know why there's a pirate expansion for Ascension? Because I love pirates and that sounded cool. Do you know why there's a miniatures game for Ascension? Because I love miniatures games and that sounded cool. And it was the same was true for my whole team. And what that means is not just like, an ego thing of do what you want, but it's a it's a it's a drive thing. The amount of work that we had to put in to build Ascension Tactics is easily 10x, probably more than that, to be of what it takes to make an Ascension expansion. 
uh, almost certainly more than that. And why would you put in that much work? Why would I now have to go back and and and, and I could I could talk about this actually at length too because when I made the World of Warcraft Ventures game, I wasn't just the designer. I was also the product manager and the brand manager, and I had to fly to China and figure out how to make things and factory stuff. And it's all of this work that you have to do to build this sort of new thing. And what's going to keep you getting up in the morning and doing the hard things, right? I had to figure out new, you know, going back to Kickstarter and figuring out new ways to market. And how has the world changed? And how do I make sure I over deliver on value? To do that kind of work to keep going, you have to have something you're excited about. And that's what this was. Like once we started working on this project and we had something that we knew was fun and awesome, it was a driving force to make me and the whole team, you know, we're a small team, but like we are, we try to act like we're bigger than we are um, because we're trying to make something that's so, so, you know, we're super excited about and proud of and that we hope other people will be excited about too. So, so that, that passion uh, for what we're building is a, is a huge part of why we're doing this. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it brings up a really good point. You know, do what gets you going, do what gives you the juice, you know, get what gets you excited about something. Cause like you're saying, you're going to be spending a lot of time on this thing. You're going to be playtesting it a lot. And so if it's not something you're excited about, it's going to be easy to burn out. It's going to be easy to go, ah, it's fine. It's good enough because you're done. You're, you're just kind of, you know, finished with it. And so I think that's a really, really good point. And something to think about, you know, go where the energy is, go where the excitement is, because if you're excited about something, it's something I figured out in my classroom. Anytime I'm teaching a topic, or teaching a book or some concept that, I, that I'm excited about, that I really love, I'm passionate about, then that gets the students going. They get more excited. They're more passionate. Not all of them. And, you know, David, he knows who he is. He's not excited about anything. But, you know, <laughs> for the most part, these students, they, they get excited about things that I'm excited about. And so I think the same can be true for games. If if you're really passionate about something, like you obviously are with this miniatures game, that's going to come through in the way you talk about it, in the way you teach the game, in the game design itself, and something really for designers to think about. You know, if you're just doing something because it's interesting, because it makes money, you know, because may, maybe that's not enough. Maybe there needs to be some more to it before you really start traveling down this road. Because game design, I mean, we're talking a year, maybe two years, three years for a game to actually come to life and get on store shelves, store shelves. And so it's something to uh, keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I it's it's I know it's a sort of counterintuitive thing, but like every time I've done a project because of the money, I made less money and was way less happy. If I mean Ascension, when I first made Ascension, I did not, it was meant to be just like something that I played with my friends, right? I just, I designed it and we just, I would just play with my friends. I was never intending to release it. And then like a bunch of my friends were like, hey, you should really make this game. And I was like, eh, I guess I could learn the process of making games, right? I didn't have a company then. I hadn't made games myself. Uh, and so I was like, eh, it'll be a good learning experience. And my friends really like it and I like it. It'll be cool to make. I did not think it was going to be the success that it was. Uh, and it, but it was because it was something I was passionate about and my friends loved. And that was a, that's what turned it into a success. And if I try to like artificially create that, it's never worked. It's always been that drive for passion that has really built things that actually succeeded and that actually like resonated with people. And, you know, now it's, it, it's, that's been the case uh, for my entire career. So I, I, I know people may be afraid to go down that road, but I think if you're just chasing trends and chasing dollars, uh, you're going to lose focus and you're not going to hit, hit what you're trying to hit. Definitely. Well, Justin, this has been great, man. Do you have any closing thoughts? You know, maybe someone sitting there listening to this, trying to figure out a, a game series of their own. What would you tell them? Well, I think uh, if you're if you're really trying to build out a game series of your own and something that you're excited about, um, you know, the the most important stuff is 
to get started and get it out there. I know it can seem intimidating. It can seem like a really long road, right? You know, when you're looking and, you know, talking to somebody who's, you know, 10 years later and all that stuff, it seems like a lot and, and it is, but the key for me in many ways was I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I didn't know most of the stuff and I had to figure it out as I went along. And while now there's tons more information, tons more guidance, um, you can get for free from listening to podcasts like this one. I also have a podcast called Think Like a Game Designer where I talk to other people who have done uh, stuff like this. You can get tons of that information. Uh, the most important thing is to take action, have an action bias and be able to feel like, look, I'm going to make it. I'm going to test it with people. I'm going to get feedback. I'm going to put something out there. Uh, whereas you should be doing planning. You should be thinking about how things would go long term. You should never let that get in the way of just taking action. It's too easy to fall into the trap of, well, I need more experience or I need to listen more or learn more or I need to like, I, I could never do that. Uh, you can find a way. And the only way you're really going to get there is by trying, failing, learning, trying again. Uh, and so that's really the most important thing I, I, I try to teach people and lead people with. Awesome. Well, we've been talking about it the last few minutes. Uh, Ascension Tactics on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the hook. Give me the, the two-minute ele uh, elevator pitch to get people to, to go check it out. Yes, it's a, a revolutionary combination of deck building games and tactical miniatures games. As you build your, not only do you get to start with a, you know, a starting deck that you build and improve, but you also get to either get some miniatures that are preset for the scenario or that you can actually draft miniatures at the start of the game. Uh, everything, the miniatures are controlled by your deck. So you actually have to use the power in your deck to command your miniatures. So it creates this really interesting dynamic of wanting to make your deck more powerful versus wanting to make your miniatures more effective on the board. There's the different scenarios create a lot of different pressures on how they should all work. You can attach constructs and upgrade your miniatures. You can have surprise effects and ambush powers that come out of the center row that influence them. There's a ton of different interesting ways to go, and you get to see badass miniatures come to life. For anybody that's an Ascension fan already, you get to see your favorite characters come to life in 3D. And if you're not an Ascension fan, you get to see these cool characters for the first time. Uh, it's one of these really great things. And not only are we able to have this available, but actually because part of the development process of this was done during, uh, you know, sort of this COVID-19 uh, crisis, we actually ended up building the game in tabletop simulator and you can actually go play it right now we'll have it available we're actually running sessions so if you you know follow the kickstarter you join us you can actually check out the game you don't have to take my word for it right we're so confident and so excited about what this experience is like that's something that you've never seen before that's going to be fun not just the first time you play but the thousandth time you play so that we'll be making tactics ascension tactics games 10 years from now uh so it's something that i really think is is new and exciting and something that you can play on your own while you're trapped at home or with friends whether it's online through the system or you know when we actually can, we're all hanging out together uh it's something that i'm i'm really proud of and and for anybody that is listening and willing to check it out, I, I very much appreciate it. I'm, I'm truly blessed to be able to continue to make games uh, so many years later, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that this is uh, as exciting for y'all as it is for me. Very cool. Well, Justin, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter, and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, man. It's been great. I love this conversation. I hope to be able to come back again soon. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?